Oh, Father, as always, what a joy it is for us to reach for our Bibles and to receive a word from you. And so we ask you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and through the spoken word, to influence and to impact our thinking, to transform us and to change our hearts, that we would walk in biblical obedience, that we would understand the world in which we live and how a Christian is to respond. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. January 22nd, 1973 is the day that will live in infamy in the United States of America. I'm confident that most, if not all of you are aware that that is the day of the landmark Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court decision that we know as Roe v. Wade. It was, as mind-boggling as it is, the day when the highest court in our land determined that mommies had a right to destroy and murder and remove their unborn babies from their body. I have to tell you that um, this is a difficult concept to comprehend. We have at Fellowship Bible Church through the years taken a Sunday Right about this time, today happens to be the 22nd of January, the anniversary. But we take one Sunday every January, and along with many others throughout our country and around the world, we recognize Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We think that it's important for the church to address this issue, that we would have a biblical understanding of what God thinks, particularly of the unborn, but of the sanctity of all of human life. There are many life issues at stake, both early, even pre-birth issues, birth and post-birth issues, and then there are other ethical issues that come up and biblical matters to respond to as far as end-of-life issues. We have issues to deal with, like Debbie's had to face, with those who are born with major issues and medical issues. We believe that it's important for the sake of the next generation that our young people grow up understanding that though we live in a culture that accepts as some kind of a a right that a mother can say, it's my body, I can do with it that which I wish, that that is not a biblical concept. In fact, that is absolutely a false concept. It's not her body. It is the body and life of another complete, whole individual. And so as I prepare these messages each year and I revisit this subject and think about it, there's a couple of things that come to my mind. One is, in the category of the ludicrous, the unbelievable, the mind-boggling, that we would have to have a message that addresses an issue that is a reality in a civilized nation, a nation that was established largely on Christian principle, that we would have now in the arena of our culture and in the outgrowth and output of our educational system that we teach our young people that even without their parents' permission at a very young age, they have a right to go to a doctor and have an unborn baby removed from the womb and killed and destroyed. 
That's really hard for me to fathom. It's especially difficult for me to stack up that kind of logic. It's that kind of illogic. Because it is so unnatural. You have to be educated into knowing that that's okay to do. And the only way you can educate people into doing that is to, is to commit an education of falsehood and lies to them. And that's what has happened. And so our young people, many are in the, the public education arena and they hear this. They're indoctrinated. And they're taught. And it is absolutely an offense and a sin in the eyes of God and a violation of His direct command. And so the church must understand what she thinks about this subject. The church must have the ability to communicate truth to the untaught and to the next generation. It is particularly incongruous to me when we deal with this subject, to think about the fact that even as a segment of our culture and our society increases in its commitment to the murder of the unborn and this so-called right of a mother to abort a child, specifically, that it is also a growing trend where it has become incredibly shocking if I take my 22 rifle and eliminate a few cats in my backyard, <laughs> that we handle seals and eagles and kitties and bunny rabbits differently and with more honor and respect and sanctity than we do unborn babies. If you don't believe me, try crawling up in a tree and start smashing Hawks' eggs out of their nests. Red-tailed hawks. Bald eagles. Videotape it. Put it on YouTube. Find out how quickly they will come to your door. Be known for annihilating cats like my buddies in high school who had a great technique that I'll not get into for making what they called kitty pizzas. I'm sorry, cat lovers. Do you understand the incongruity? Do you understand the, the ludicrous nature of the logic? How have we gotten here? That being said, I also want to acknowledge that this is a Sunday not to be an angry preacher. It's upsetting. It can make you angry. I don't want to come across as an angry pastor preacher it is a Sunday also to acknowledge that the grace of God is at work in people's lives. It is a Sunday to acknowledge that, like the church at Corinth, the church at Shenandoah Junction is filled with people who have a past. They have a past that was before Christ. And as Paul labeled off these lists of heinous sins in 1 Corinthians, he said, and such were some of you. And so it is very possible that some of you know what it is to live with a mindset where you would, without even realizing you were doing something heinous, attack your unborn baby. So can I tell you today, it's a day to revel in the grace of God. 
It's a day to revel in His forgiveness. It's a day to revel in your salvation and to say, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. And can I footnote and say that if you have an abortion in your past or a disgraceful decision-making process in your past that you're ashamed of, and maybe nobody even knows it, that you don't need the grace of God any more than any of the rest of us here today. That we are all on an equal footing. We are all on a level plane of needing the forgiveness and the grace of our Heavenly Father and the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if it's not one sin, it's another. In fact, it's our standing before a holy God. We who were dead in trespasses and sin. We who were hopeless and helpless until God's word penetrated our hard hearts. Until the scales fell off our blind eyes. And we were born again. And so today, I don't want it to be a time where sin that has been confessed and forgiven and forgotten by our Heavenly Father is remeditated upon by saved sinners. Don't do that. Revel in the grace and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus. It's a great day to remind yourselves or memorize, if you haven't already, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Everybody needs 1 John 1, 9, no matter your past. And so we could harangue and carry on and stomp and snort a little bit here about what's going on, but uh, the question occurs to me, what can the church do? How can we get involved? Right now, the numbers that we're told uh, statistically are... Right about one million abortions a year take place in the United States since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. It peaked at somewhere around 1.6 million abortions in the year of 1990. By God's grace, because of the activity of God's people and others who care about this subject, who maybe don't even know God, uh, and because of ultrasound machines... There is a growing pro-life movement going across the country and one little bit at a time we're seeing progress made and we're seeing every year the total numbers of abortions creeping downward. So I don't know how God would burden your heart to get involved, whether it would be in an area pregnancy uh, clinic, uh, whether it would be in just uh, paying a closer attention to uh, your young people that are under your influence, whether some of you work with children or youth at Fellowship Bible Church, and it will renew your commitment to raising them up to walk in biblical obedience so they don't end up in situations that are difficult. But today I want to challenge our church in the area of adoption. As I've been thinking about it, and of course this is something that's quite personal in our home, uh, I've been thinking that... um, one of the greatest alternatives to abortion is adoption. And I don't know how much you've thought about adoption. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Do you know that some of the most famous Bible characters in Scripture were adopted? One in particular that is one of the most well-known Bible characters uh, of all time, and if you've been around church world and been to Sunday school, I know that even at a young age you begin to hear stories 
about this little guy. And in fact, you know the story that we're going to begin and use as a foundation to our biblical principles later in our message. It's Exodus chapter 2. If you recall the story of Exodus, you know that in chapter 1, it, is the, it was a time when Pharaoh proclaimed a, an attack upon the baby's of the Israelites who were still living in Egypt. If you've been around here very long, it wasn't that long ago we were preaching in the book of Genesis. We had a good time for, oh, maybe three years going through Genesis. And we know that Joseph ended up down in Egypt. Remember Joseph with the coat of many colors. And in fact, let's just let our eyes fall to chapter 1 and verse 6. And notice, it says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly, and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Cradled in the refuge of the Ark of Egypt was God's people, planted there by Joseph's misplacement, what man meant for evil, God meant for good, and God put them down there where they could thrive, where Joseph could highly impact the whole nation of Israel. Remember, he kept them from starving to death. And there they still are, but... The generations grew and changed. The regime changed. And finally there came a time in Egypt when a regime came to power and a pharaoh sat on the throne who no longer knew his history of his country. He no longer knew that it was the Israelites, that it was Joseph who had literally saved Egypt and he no longer honored the Israelites. In fact, there became a major racial divide in the country and there was this politically driven problem with this growing nationality of Israelites among the Egyptians to the degree that this misplaced people were were permeating and taking over the whole land. Let's look and see what it says. A few more verses in chapter 1, and then we'll look at chapter 2 for a few minutes. Verse 8. Verse 7, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, verse 8, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. When a politician says, let's deal shrewdly with them, you better watch out. Or they will become even more numerous... Because if war breaks out, verse 10, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And then they began to build all these storehouses and they worked them. But it says, and they worked them ruthlessly, verse 13. And the the Egyptians used them ruthlessly, verse 14. And it came, though, even in the midst of all of that, That God gave them increase. And the more they were oppressed, it says, the more children were born. Well, they got after the Israeli nurse midwives and they came up with this shrewd plan. Here's the shrewd plan. When you have your Israelite mommies in you having their babies and they are on the birthing stool... Accidentally drop them and tell them they were stillborn. So it was like a postpartum abortion. It was some form of a murder. That's all you can say. But these precious midwives, who have their names preserved in Scripture for us, refused to do it. 
They continue to populate. So the king has to come up with another idea. Ah, this is great. It also creates a huge issue for us. What do we do when the highest offices in our land call for the murder of the unborn? When they promote it and they campaign on it and they identify with it as a movement. It's not so far off in our country even to what they were doing here. And we look at this and we would say, oh, we would never do that. No, but we'll stand up in a campaign pulpit and we will pronounce to the world that we're campaigning on the one plank of our platform is that a a young girl ought to be able to abort a baby anytime she wants to. Vote for me. Vote for me. I'm really open-minded. We need to pray, pray, pray for the salvation of the souls of politicians who promote abortion. Here's the next plan, verse 22, chapter 1. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile River, but let every girl live. Now there's a good plan. All right, the midwives aren't cooperating with us. They're not killing the babies when they're born. So we're just going to send out our police force. We're going to round up the babies. We're going to just chuck them in the river. That'll take care of them. Heinous, huh? Unbelievable. How would anybody ever do that? You can't say that. You can't say that. We live in a culture that has no more respect for the unborn than this. Chapter 2, we find out that there's an adoption option here. It's really great how God turns tables on the Pharaoh. The first thing I want you to see is that we have a high-risk pregnancy, a baby at risk, number one, a baby at risk. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. These would be Israelites. It was, if you look at chapter 6, verse 20, you don't have to, there's a genealogy there. It was a man named Amram, and he married a woman named Jochebed, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, remember that chapter 2, verse 1 comes right after chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22 says that Pharaoh gave the order to throw every baby that's born into the river. So chapter 2, verse 1, they get pregnant, all right, and they don't have ultrasound, and they don't know what's going to happen. Can you imagine what they talked about late in the evening when all the other kids were in bed? Honey, what are we going to do? We got this baby coming. What if it's a boy? High-risk pregnancy here. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son. Then there's kind of a funny line here at the end of verse 2. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. I had to wonder. I wonder if she thought he was an ugly child, she would have thrown him in the river. No, I don't think so. All right. But it is kind of cute how the writers, he was a fine child. We're going to keep this one. All right. We're going to keep this one. Well, this is Moses that is born. They don't know it's Moses yet. They just know it's their baby son. They know that uh, they live in a culture where this is unacceptable. They live in a time when there has been an oppression. There has been a task force assigned to throw babies in the river. And here's their baby. The second thing we're going to see, verse 3 in the story, after this high-risk pregnancy or a baby at risk, we see, number two, a mother's love. A mother's love. We're going to see a mother go to extraordinary measures in extraordinary times. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. I have to tell you that I think it is so incongruous. I think it's funny that Moses got thrown in the Nile. Isn't that interesting? And that Pharaoh, the one who decrees that all the babies get thrown into the river to drown, is the very one who's going to nurture, take care, and pay for the food for this guy. He's going to raise him up. He's the one that's going to, through him, he's going to preserve God's man. That's a mother's love, isn't it? A mother's love is such that God put it in a mommy to love her baby, and I think even before conception. Listen, you have to educate a little girl into believing that she could do anything to harm her babies. Look how they play with their dollies. And that is not a cultural, learned thing. Look how, look how God designed a woman to want to care and to nurture, and to have little teacups and little toast, to change dirty diapers. But when somebody threatens her baby, Mama She-Bear gets her fangs and her claws going, doesn't she? She gets an idea and she goes to an extraordinary measure and she makes this little basket. You know, they must have talked about it. We don't have it in the text. We just have the basics of the story. But notice when Miriam, I assume this was Miriam, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. Uh, Excuse me, back up just a minute, Uh, up to verse... Four, then she placed the child in this basket, put it among the reeds along the Nile. Then verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. They must have talked about what the options might be. They must have talked about, because I don't think to see what would happen meant flow down the river and which waterfalls he was going to go over. I think it meant kind of like, would people notice? If people noticed, who would notice? And if they did notice, what's our plan going to be next? So the boy's three months old. He's getting too, too loud and rambunctious to keep a lid on in the neighborhood. They put him in the river. Big sister's sitting among the reeds. Pharaoh's daughter and her servants come down. The third thing we see in the story is a stranger's compassion. The compassion of this strange woman, a stranger. She opened it, verse 6, saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. You know, I don't know Hebrew, and it doesn't say it in the text, but I know what she said. She said, Oh, a baby. Oh, oh, he's cute. Let me see him. Oh, oh. See, this is a mommy thing. This is a woman thing. Can I tell you that the stranger had compassion? And do you know that I have witnessed and I have observed that God has put it in a woman that she has a great capacity to love a baby that's not her own. It's not a problem. You say, well, I don't know if I could adopt a baby because I don't know if I could. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. As soon as you see it, it's your baby. It's like, oh, oh. And so then God, God kind of pulls it off. It's pretty neat, you know. I, I doubt he broke a sweat, but look what it says. This is one of the Hebrew babies. And then his sister asked Pharaoh, so she like comes out of the reeds. Would you like me to find a midwife that could nurse your baby for you? What a great idea, she says. 
Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. How's that? <laughs> she gets to take the baby home, she gets to raise her own child, and she gets a paycheck from Pharaoh's treasury. How great is that? All because Pharaoh's daughter had a plan. She wanted that boy. She loved that boy. The compassion of a stranger, the ability of one woman to love another woman's baby is a great mystery, isn't it? Mystery. It's a marvel. It works. Fourth and final thing I want you to see in this passage, not only was there a high-risk pregnancy, a baby at risk, we observed a mother's extraordinary love. We recognized the compassion of a stranger and the ability of a stranger to love another one's baby. But we must recognize the sovereign plan of God here, number four, hadn't we? The sovereign plan of God. And so the woman took the baby, verse 9, and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. There's adoption in the Bible. He became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Evidently, some Egyptian form, that means draw him out of the water. Bible scholars debate what Moses means, the name means. I take it, that's what it means. Let me ask you a question. Did they know that this was Moses? I mean, Moses, Moses. They named him Moses, but they didn't know that Moses was Moses. God had a plan. What would have happened if they had got that baby and dumped him in the river? A million abortions a year? You're kidding me. 1.5 million people live in the state of West Virginia. 800,000 people live in the state of South Dakota. What would it be like to open the newspaper and say two-thirds of the state of West Virginia was washed away in a flood? The entire state of South Dakota in another city up in North Dakota washed away. It's gone. What a tragedy. Every year, all these people resources washed down the drain. Who knows? Who knows the capacities? Who knows the potential of these precious babies? I just love to think about it. They had no idea when they were teaching Moses math and horseback riding and how to shoot a bow and how to run fast and how to do jujitsu and how to be a captain of an army and how to look at the stars and navigate because he had the finest education in all of Egypt and they were not dumb. Who knew that in God's sovereign plan, when he had been thrown in that river in his little basket and then adopted by another mother, that it was all part of God's plan and strategy to get him right where he belonged for his life, for what God had purposed for him, for what God was going to do in him. And that a, another pharaoh or two later... It was this guy that was going to throw his stick on the ground and it was going to turn into a snake. And he was going to put his hand inside his coat and it was going to turn leprous. And he was going to look at the Pharaoh and say, let my people go and lead them. God's man preserved through the adoption and the love of a mommy who wasn't his biological mommy. It's a powerful reality, isn't it? And so I think that the church needs to have a mindset for adoption. Let me click off three reasons why I think the church 
must be passionate about adoption. Reason number one is that I believe that adoption is a practical application of our biblical text. Adoption provides or is a practical application of our biblical text. Turn to Psalm 82 with me real quick. You need to be fast now, okay? Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Look what it says. We'll look at one Old Testament verse and one New Testament verse, and there are many more passages. But look what the psalmist Asaph says. Psalm 82, begin with verse 3. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Wow. I would suggest that when we have opportunity to get needy children... And when mommies are in a situation where they cannot take care of their baby and they need some help, that of all people, the church ought to be there to live out Psalm 82, to provide the needs of orphans and to help with needy and poor people. It should be no question about it. Do you know that there's 150,000 adoptions in the U.S. every year? Do you know that there's 127,000, I don't know where they get their numbers, but they say, uh, this is off of Dr. Dobson's website, or Focus on the Family's website, 150,000 adoptions a year, 127,000 children out there to be adopted. It's interesting, isn't it? God's Word says, take care of the orphans. God's Word says, help the poor and the needy. That could include the poor mommy who's got herself in a situation that is out of her control and she has no idea what to do with her spinning world. And maybe you can come alongside. Possibly God opens the door for adoption. Have you ever thought about adopting a baby? Have you ever thought about adopting a young child or even a young teen? Why not? Why wouldn't we? Oh, Pastor Van, don't have enough room in my house. Yes, you do. I worked in Alaska. I know how many Eskimos can live in one 12 by 12 shack. (laughs) The answer is lots. Way more than live in your house. Say, well, I I would have to get a new car. So? That was not a slam against Eskimos, by the way. I love Eskimo people and enjoyed my time in the Yukon. It's just the reality. You say, but adoptions cost a lot of money, like... $20,000. $20,000. Well, you paid $27,500 for your new car. You see, you can do it. And you would be living out the text of Scripture. James chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to it. Turn there if you wish. James chapter 1, verse 27. James 1, 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Okay, note. This is not religion where man is trying to jump to God. Counting beads, putting money in the offering. My religion so that I can please God. He's not talking about that. James is always concerned about the outworking of our faith. That if you have faith in Jesus Christ and he's transformed your life, then you do works that show the fruit of righteousness in you. Faith and works is a big deal to James. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the living out of your faith in Christ when he uses the word religion here. And he says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted or from being polluted by the world. Do you get it? 
Adoption is an incredibly intense way to just practically apply the text of Scripture to my life. Okay, I'm supposed to care for orphans. The Bible says so. I'll bring them right into my home. Why not? Second thing is, and I don't want to go a long time on this, but let me mention something that came to my mind. The church should be passionate about adoption, number one, because adoption is a practical application of the biblical text. It helps us live out obedience to Scripture. Number two, adoption is an intentional solution to to cultural trends. Adoption is an intentional solution. If we would get intentional by design to plan to adopt, it would help with the current and coming cultural trends. I don't want to throw a lot of statistics at you, but let me just mention a couple, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying here. Listen. Of all the girls, women, who have abortions, 82%, 8 out of 10, are unmarried. 8 out of 10 are unmarried. Of them, 50% of all women who have abortions are age 25 and under. Okay, so think about it. If you're 25 and under and you're single, what are you? You're a college student. A breeding ground for the lie of abortion is our secular college campuses. Don't doubt it for a second. And shame on our professors and shame on our universities and shame on our people for facilitating this for their young people. Shame on PhDs standing in a classroom saying, bah humbug to God's word, and it's your body, do whatever you want, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's not your body, you can't do it whatever you want, it's a baby's body, and it's separate from your body. But here's what's going to happen. There's been more trending, as I referenced earlier, towards not having abortions. Ultrasound has been a big thing. Girls go in, they think they're going to have an abortion. They do an ultrasound and they see the baby doing jumping jacks and they see the heart pounding and they see this beautiful little image. It's like, wow, it really isn't just like my appendix. It really is a person. And they walk out. When they walk out, who's there to greet them? And I'm telling you, I predict that every year we're going to continue to see abortion dropping by God's grace. And there's going to be more and more girls, not all of them. Some will raise their own babies. Some will get married. Some of their families will help them. But there will be more and more who will be available to say, would you put this baby in a basket and take care of it for me? And a stranger with compassion will come and say, give that baby to me. I think first in line ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. Give that baby to me. And we can help buck current trends if we believe in adoption and are intentional about doing it. Finally, and most importantly, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And I want to show you that, as we conclude, that it another and final reason that the church should be passionate about adoption is that adoption is a beautiful illustration of spiritual truth. Adoption is a beautiful illustration of spiritual truth. There are numerous scriptures to look at here. And and so while you're in Galatians chapter 4, just listen while I read John chapter 1. And read just a couple verses from John's Gospel, verse 1. Now just listen. You're in Galatians 4, waiting. 
but your ears are up here. He says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Verse 12 of John's gospel, verse, chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to verse 13. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. That is, we have the ability, by believing in Jesus, to be children of God. Those who have their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are children of God. Now to Paul's teaching, Paul's instruction in Galatians 4. Look what he says, beginning with verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. That's family talk. Ephesians chapter 1 uses the word adoption that we were predestined to be adopted. Those who are saved. It's amazing reality. Listen closely. You're a sinner. You figure out you're a sinner. God's word confronts your life. You realize there's a creator God that you've offended. You realize that he loved you so much he sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die in your place that by faith you could look to the cross and live. The moment you believe, I don't know if these go in order, but the moment you believe, guess what happens? You have a new birth. It's called regeneration. Regeneration. It means to come alive. That which is dead is born. Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John's Gospel, chapter 3, about this. You must be born again. That's regenerated. All right? So I'm alive. That which is dead in trespasses and sin, that which was a corpse of, a, of deadness outside of Christ, has awakened and is now alive. That's regeneration. And at that moment of your salvation... Your faith and trust is in the fact that Jesus Christ alone paid the penalty for your sin and His blood washes you white as snow. And only reason you can come to God is because Jesus was your substitute. You've been not only regenerated, made alive, you've been justified. I love that word and we talk about it a good bit. God puts on His judge robe, His big black robe, goes behind the desk, hits it with the gavel, and declares you righteous once and for all in, under the blood of Christ. So that which was once in the sin file is now your name is in the Jesus file and there's no record anywhere that your name was ever in the sin file. You have been declared righteous. So the moment you're saved, I ask you, God, to allow me, a repentant sinner, to acknowledge my sinfulness, that Jesus Christ's blood would wash me white as snow, that you would make me your child. You're regenerated. You're made alive. You're justified. You're robed with the righteousness of Christ. That's why from then on, once you're saved, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. That's the only basis why you can come into his presence. Because Jesus gave you everything that he is. You've been justified. Not only that, it even gets better. God says, you can be my child. And you can call me Abba, Father. Aramaic for Daddy. So one made me alive, the other declared me righteous, and adoption, spiritual adoption, 
receives me into God's family with adult standing and all of the rights that go with it. It is as though I am, be careful, this isn't heresy, it's as though in God's eyes I'm the same as Jesus. I'm part of the family. It's what it meant in Galatians. I am a joint heir with Jesus. I am an equal heir with Jesus. All of the rights that Jesus has as the firstborn among many, as the one who is his only begotten son, all of his rights in sonship are in essence given to me in sonship. I am adopted into the family of God. I become his child and I have all of the rights. And we're all equal. That's why there's not a hierarchy in the family of God. We are all adopted the same way. Through the blood of Christ, he adopts us and we can call him father. The reason we call him father is because we're his children. And the reason we're his children is because he adopted us. Amen? I don't really get what I just said. But I really like it. I really like it. So I think the church should be a reflection of their heavenly father and be an adopting people. What do you think? Why wouldn't we? God adopts us all the time. He adopts dirty, rotten, nasty sinners. I was going to give you a few more adjectives, but I decided not to. So, it helps us live out the text when we adopt, doesn't it? Care for the orphans, it says. Care for the needy. We can live out the text. We can, we can stand against the trend of our culture if we're here with open arms and we say, put that baby in these hands right here. Especially if we do have the opportunity with an increasing oper- uh, um, number of babies. And finally, we reflect what our Heavenly Father does. I think the church should be passionate about adoption. Let's bow in prayer, shall we please? I want to ask two questions, and then I'm going to pray with your heads bowed. The most important question here today is, have you been adopted by God? And are you a child of His? Have you acknowledged that your sinfulness has separated you from God, and that only what Jesus did at the cross satisfies the demands of our holy God? And that you can come to Him today in faith, No works, simply accepting the free gift of his salvation. He will make you alive through regeneration. He will declare you righteous through justification. And he will make you his child through adoption. And you will have all of the privileges of any adult in the family of God. Why don't you do that right now? Acknowledge your sinfulness. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for you, he rose again, and he's the right hand of the Father, that he alone is your, your way of salvation. Become his child. Second question I want to ask is, don't you think it's about time for some of you to adopt some kids? We get all fired up about putting a sunroom on the back of the house, and we get all fired up about planning for next year's vacation. It's time for some families to get fired up about adopting some kids. Putting some tar and some pitch on your papyrus basket and letting God put a baby in that basket. Why don't you begin today to pray and say, Lord, if it would be your will, we would adopt a baby. We would adopt some children. We'll be opening our home to needy orphans.
And if we can, we'll assist with their mommies of the needy children. Father, we turn to you in Jesus' name this morning, challenged in our hearts, realizing that we're a privileged people, not the least of which is our standing in your family and born-again, saved children, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, in line for a rich inheritance because we're your children. And privileged, Lord, because there's a lot of great mommies and daddies in this church who've already reached out to needy children. So, Father, continue to do that kind of a work among us and may Fellowship Bible Church be known as a church that loves children and that is a lighthouse and a rescue station for for the needy. It's in Jesus' name we pray.